Hi, welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm your host, Valentine. You may have noticed that I haven't been around lately. We are so lucky to have Andrew join the team and taking the reins. I am working on a very exciting project of my own, so Andrew will be your main host for the BRN podcast. I have learned so much starting this podcast, and I am taking those skills to develop something new and exciting that I will share when it's ready sometime in June, hopefully. But don't worry, I'll still be here in the background supporting this podcast and occasionally be on here. But more importantly, I am so excited to share today's interview with you. I am obsessed with these two guests. Vimala Sara interviewed the organizers of Sober Voices, which is a sobriety summit taking place online February 4th through 6th. The online lineup is insane. Carolyn Colladro from Recovery for the Revolution will be there. Sherry Hampton from Served Up Sober. Holly Whitaker, author of Quit Like a Woman. Annie Grace, author of This Naked Mind, Chris Marshall from Sands Bar, Taryn Strong from She Recovers, and an insane amount more. So go to www.supervoices.com for more info and tickets. Be sure to check out our next BRN Academy featuring guest teacher Kara Haney. This will take place Sunday, February 7th, The title of the workshop is Watch Your Tone, Awareness of Feeling Tones. To get more info, visit BuddhistRecovery.org. Welcome, Phoebe, and welcome, Alyssa. Have I said your name correctly? Is it Alyssa or Alicia? Alyssa, you did great. Thank okay. you. All right. So welcome, welcome, Phoebe, and welcome, Alyssa. It's really quite exciting to have this interview with you on Instagram. All these recovery programs seem to be popping up. It seems to be fashionable amongst the millennials to be in recovery, which is absolutely fantastic. So. Um, Sober Voices. Who who is Sober Voices? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say Sober Voices is the the community that has been built around this idea of having an event. Um, it includes all of our speakers and their audiences and their communities and basically anyone who sees what we're trying to do. I would say people who believe in harm reduction, thinking about sobriety or being sober curious, being sober um, from alcohol or any substance really, because all recovery is fairly, um, they share a lot of similar traits depending on, it just doesn't really depend on the substance you're using. Um, It's just the fact that we're all recovering from life or from something. Yeah, and this this community really built from this is Alyssa, by the way, you've just heard from Phoebe. Um, this community really built from an idea that Phoebe had in her bathtub of all places. Um, and she that's where she has her great thoughts. Um, and her idea was originally about like you know, we don't have like an annual touch point or some sort of event that brings together sober thought leaders under one under one roof, so to say. And a lot of the events and content we see is from like uh, from the same people and a lot, and there's a lack of diversity that we think, you know, is needed. So it really grew from there. I don't know if you want to talk more about kind of how that idea evolved. Yeah. I mean, I want to just call a spade a spade in that, you know, I'm sitting in my bathtub in July in the context of all the social justice uprisings happening here in the United States and watching as our micro community of sober people aren't, like changes aren't happening from, especially from the white women that we've, that I was following or watching. And I, I just couldn't sit by and continue to uh, watch 
the same thing happen over and over again, especially when it came to events and building community. Um, you know, I identify as queer and femme, and I created this community here in Chicago, where I'm from, called the Chicago Queer Sober Social. So I knew how important it was to have a space for where you could be represented and where you could have, you could convene and talk about the things that were affecting you. And so I think from an event standpoint, I come from a corporate marketing background. So I just, I saw that there was this opening and someone was going to do it. And in the context of what was happening here in the United States with social justice being like coming up and becoming such an important topic here, I was like, well, we should, if us as white women are going to do something, we might as well try and do it the right way. (laughs) And so we, have had the, I mean, just the absolute pleasure and responsibility to engage with lots of different advisors and folks who are in the in the sober community with m- many different identities, with many dif- of many different races, and um, paying them for their input and paying them to help us be accountable to this greater movement around accessibility and inclusion. Great. So. Uh- definitely looking at the intersectionality of sobriety and social justice i mean i'm i'm kind of amazed at how how that has been separate but it has but i just want to come back to this diversity because i think it's great the the thought leaders in um you know, in in sobriety. But would you say that your organization is American specific because when i look at your speakers i think they're all all american Right now, we, that's a great question. I can answer it if you'd like, unless you want to finish your thoughts, sorry. We, um, we have one speaker from London, DJ Paulette. She's incredible. Um, yeah, right now it's a, it's definitely our network was US based. So we ideally, as we grow, would love to have it, you know, that's a key part of scaling this and making it bigger and being more accessible, inclusive, from just having our very Western U.S. focus um, talks and, and perspectives and experiences. Yeah, we definitely hope this is the first of many, and from there it can, you know, grow out, and maybe there'll be like different sort of pockets so that there's different time zones going on. Um, I think this time is just the first, the first go, and we uh, really started based off of. Um, some connections we had that allowed us to build and get introduced. And and then from there, you know, with the mindset we had and, and who we wanted represented very intentionally seeking people out. Um, And the response we've get, we've gotten has just been overwhelmingly positive. And um, like Phoebe said, just the people that we've met and that we have on our um, schedule on our summit schedule and giving talks is just really amazing. (laughs) So hopefully it grows. The other thing is that um, with the virtual event, uh, anyone who buys a ticket gets recording access through the whole month. So ideally um, not being able to tune in live if it's at like 3 a.m. your time won't be an issue or a reason for someone to miss out. Give us a preview of who who we expect to hear as these as these thought leaders. Who, who are we going to hear from? Oh, my gosh. I could like rattle off everyone. I, I've been doing, this is Phoebe. I've been doing the majority of our speaker management and have been, had the, just the pleasure and privilege to receive everyone's recordings as the person facilitating the recordings. And it's just incredible. So, I mean, off the top of my head, we've got folks like Carolyn Collado from Recovery for the Revolution, who I'm obsessed with their work and I am probably their number one fangirl <laughs> frankly they were like they told me once that they just they'd never had fan fangirls before I'm like well I'm the captain of that club if you'd like um Carolyn Collado uh Kati Alawatoyan I think that's how you say her last name from Sober Black Girls Club uh Crystal Rosales Chris Marshall Latiana Blue, uh, Holly Whitaker, Annie Grace, um, Taryn Strong from She Recovers, and Kristen Walker from Sober Brown Girls, um, uh, Michelle Yang, who will be speaking about being sober, not from a recovery standpoint, but from being dual, having a dual diagnosis as an Asian American. Um, we have a, a whole bunch of queer folks. Uh, we have a, quite a few trans folks and. Um, various panels from artists and neurodiverse and disabled folks. And uh, we have a BIPOC panel where um, Carolyn actually facilitated that and, and um, 
led the moderating for that discussion. And then we have our last panel is, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's, there's a lot of content. It's, we also have, um, you know, some up and coming, you know, sober thought leaders. So Brandon Anthony will be speaking with Annie Grace. And these are two people who are approaching recovery from their own unique places. And um, Brandon runs a very BIPOC forward uh, creative and artist fund for uh, folks down in Atlanta, I think, or Texas. I can't remember exactly where, um, but he's been really big on Reddit in the Reddit sober world. And so having Brandon and Annie Grace, who wrote the book, This Naked Mind, um, which is, I think, a, a favorite of, among a lot of folks who've read it, uh, talking about what they, their experiences in sobriety and recovery and then how they move the movement forward is really interesting. At least we thought it was and it seems other people do, too. Um, and then also, you know, we have Chris Marshall and uh, who runs Sands Bar in Austin, Texas, speaking with Philip Spear, who is a Michelin star um, chef in Austin, Texas. And they're going to be talking about their approaches to recovery being in hospitality. That's another keynote conversation. And then we have Hollywood Whitaker and Carolyn um, talking about the future of recovery uh, from their very unique yet in integrated perspectives on how do we make recovery more inclusive. What's the intersectionality of sober voices who they brought together and the 12-step community or the Buddhist recovery community? Because there are many thought leaders in the Buddhist recovery community. Uh, what's that intersectionality? Mm, that's a good question. I I would say we... Off the top of my head, I can't speak to any of our speakers who outwardly say, oh, I'm a, I use a Buddhist recovery me- methodology or, or framework for my recovery. We do have some folks from 12-step programs who are, are speaking about their experiences around 12-step. Shayla Martin is actually giving a talk on the 10th tradition and how her experience as a Black woman, that's been really difficult to navigate in the rooms and a, a critique on that with love because she's still involved in the program. Um, so that's really powerful. And I would say we in the future, we would love to open this up. So we'd love to have you <laughs> speak, um, you know, next year or anyone in, within your network and in terms of intersectionality, bringing in as many points of view as possible so we can meet, we can all collectively meet people where they're at on this journey. And one of the things I'm really um, curious about, and this is, this is a problematic when we even think of Buddhist recovery, because often there's, there's been this debate, well, if you have Buddhist recovery meetings, does it have to be done by teachers and leaders? And when we go to the 12 steps, there are no celebrities, there are no personalities. And so here we, we see this movement. It's, it's almost like um, you can begin to make a living out of being a recovery thought leader. Um, what Do you have any concerns about that? Have you, have you thought about that? If, if we think that 12 steps has lasted for so many years and has been really clear about not taking money from people, not having celebrities. Obviously, they do have speakers who do the circuit, but there's there's nobody who's seen as a celebrity. But now we are beginning to see celebrities um, in the recovery movement. Yeah. Alyssa, do you have any thoughts? Otherwise, I can jump in. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, we, I think that was sort of a consideration when we were putting together this lineup. It's interesting because we have like, 20 individual speakers, but those are only about 20 minute sessions. And then when it came to the keynotes, you know, obviously from an event and production standpoint and wanting to sell tickets and get eyeballs on your event, you think about like, oh, well, we want big names to be our keynotes. But really for us, it, we wanted it to be less about that. And so that's where it came to play this idea of having a conversation between two people who might be coming from different spaces under this umbrella. Um, and also enlisting some of the people that have, that are like, you know, making a really good living or have like celebrity status in the sober space Um getting them in on our goal and help having their support and building what we're building. And, you know, it's not, you know, we're not really like, it's not like we're paying someone a huge fee because they have a larger audience. Pretty much everyone's being paid the same. And 
um, as far as like celebrity goes? That's an interesting. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I I appreciate that question because I was in and out of the rooms when I first started my journey around recovery and. It's a recon- it's a paradigm shift to first of all go from what has been historically stigmatized and underground in terms of being sober and recovery and now this event is very much the opposite of that. In fact, we're name people have their full names, we're celebrating and seeing it as a public, you know, stake in the ground of empowerment and here I am and this isn't anything to be sick like to stigmatize anymore and I think along that journey, um, you know, I'm, I'm an artist. And so paying people for their labor and for their emotional labor and for their gifts is, is another paradigm shift, as you're pointing out, in this historical space of service-based helping people through recovery. Um, there are people who make a living from this and who do have 12-step backgrounds or experience are still in the rooms and are helping people heal in other ways. It is I think a really interesting question. I don't have the answer to it. I think we're all kind of exploring it as it's happening. And for us, I think from a production and um, honoring people's gifts and the energy that it takes to produce a talk and sit down and share your story, it was important to us that we paid people for that, for their time, for their energy, for their, for their network, for all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think um, you know, just kind of talking more about this topic, I mean, one of the reasons why um, 12 Steps didn't want celebrities, I mean, it's 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 a well-known fact, I think, when um, Bill W, it wasn't Dr. Bob, but what, there was a third person and they relapsed. What impact that has on people if you relapse and we, you know, sometimes I hear people talking about, I've been a long time in recovery and they talk about three years. And I think that's not a long time in recovery. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's great, but it's not a long time in, 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 in recovery. And, and what I suppose my, my concern is, what is the support there for Sober Voices where you begin to platform these thought leaders and then they relapse because we know it has a huge impact on the community. We see celebrities who, 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 who take their lives or, and it has a huge impact. Mm-hmm. I think at least my gut reaction, and I don't speak for all of our speakers. This is like thoughts are my own kind of thing. I don't want to ever represent what other people think because our speakers may disagree with me, but I think that relapse is a very, human part of this experience around giving up and leaving addictive substances. And I think it speaks to the complexity of recovery and how it's nuanced and it takes time and it takes trying. And I think relapse is so stigmatized within an already stigmatized uh, space that if we can, if someone does relapse, it doesn't mean that they aren't on this path towards recovery and that's important to show because if somebody does relapse and they think, Oh God, there's no path forward for me. There is a path forward for you. And it's important that we don't give up on those folks or we don't, I think it's a fine line, right? Because it should, it, on the one hand, someone could say, well, relapse, that's like saying it's okay to relapse and that, you know, Oh no, it's, it's going to happen. And it honestly might. Um, I think it's, I, I, this takes me back. I feel called to share when I first quit drinking and I told my dad and my grandfather who both identify as alcoholics that I don't take that label on for my own identity. I decided to call myself sober and in recovery. Um, and they, their visceral response to that saying that this is dangerous, that you're going to harm people by not labeling yourself as such. And I, I, personally just did not feel that way at all. It felt like a mindset shift for me to be able to say I'm sober and it's a positive reinforcement of this lifestyle. And that has kept me sober without relapse for over three years, back to the three years. (laughs) Not that that's a long time. I was going to say that like, you know, that's one thing I've thought about I mean, there's so many different ideas and things that we're going to have to get to in future future events. 
But I would love to have a talk eventually from someone that has relapsed to share about that experience because I think removing shame from that is such a powerful thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is all just about self-acceptance regardless of what stage you're in. And if it's someone who's feeling like they're resetting that clock, which happens to very a lot of people, then I, I want them to feel like they have a place here too. I will say that a couple of our speakers at least on one of the panels that I recorded have came out about their relapse and talked about it um, within that space and are now sober uh, and are in recovery again, but relapse was part of their story. So they shared it. I mean, it's interesting two things as um, I mean, I have a program called mindfulness based addiction recovery and the whole reason why it was called mindfulness-based addiction recovery was not to focus on relapse because we know that it happens and let's focus on the the positive of of recovery because it's how we work with relapse. I mean, I was somebody who was a chronic relapser, but one of the things I love about Buddhist recovery is you don't even say you're sober. There is no labels. I mean, that, that's, that's the beautiful thing I think about Buddhist recovery. It's, it's like when people say harm reduction, abstinence, you know, I'm, I'm an addict. It's like there are no labels, you know, and it's actual, actually the labels that can define us. So if we have our strong label, even that I'm sober, I'm sober, and then we relapse, that's when the shame happens. Totally. That's beautiful. I had no idea that that was a component of Buddhist recovery. Yeah, because it's a component of the Buddhist teachings, non-self. That you, it's all about letting go of all identities, all labels. That that's that's what the whole practice is about. Mm. That's so cool. That's such a paradigm shift for me to think about. Thank you. <laughs> no, it, it's great. It's it's great having this um, conversation. I I I I want to come into what what was it that brought you both into recovery another label what was it that brought you into not wanting to well I don't know actually because recovery looks in different ways some people can be in recovery and still be using marijuana but have let go of the alcohol so what what brought you to this path Phoebe and I have very different stories um and there's some overlap just because we've been friends for over a decade now Um, and got sober within like the same few months of one another, sort of separately. Uh, For me, I come, I sort of entered sobriety. My first step was sort of going to Al-Anon meetings, uh, because two members of my immediate family, one of my parents and a sibling, have both struggled with alcohol use. I'm trying not to, I try not to label anyone else an alcoholic, because that's up to them to choose their own labels or diagnose themselves. Um, but it's just something that has impacted my entire life. And, you know, it's the reason why my parents separated when I was a kid. And there was a few years span up on um, leading up to me getting sober where I had multiple interventions and, you know, legal issues and rock bottoms for the two of them and stints of sobriety. And then, and I had just become so codependent Uh, It actually took me moving across the country from Michigan to Texas to walk into an Al-Anon meeting, which I'd been wanting to do for some time. And um, kudos to Phoebe, who uh, (laughs) I would call every time I was sort of in a crisis about this. And one time she said, so what are you going to do different this time? (laughs) Um, She's always encouraging some tough love and boundaries. But for me, it was going to Al-Anon meetings and really unpacking my family history with it. Um, and then my own experiences with drinking and, uh, the sort of the collision of, you know, spending time, money and energy on something that wasn't really serving my goals at the time. And then also realizing that I had a lot of codependency and family baggage around this and it had really never been a positive force in my life. So that encouraged me to do, um, a 40-day mantra project through um, Holly Whitaker's, um, it used to be Hip Sobriety, her program. And I got through 40 days and I just felt really good. So I decided to go for 100. And then after 100 days, I just felt really in alignment with that. And it's sort of just been a building on from there. Phoebe and I joke sometimes that I call myself a recovering codependent because I don't label myself as an alcoholic or in recovery or you know, I just say sober because it's easy, but I don't really, there's so much weight even around that label sometimes. Um, 
But for me, it was really about realizing what little control I had over, you know, the lives of these two people. I just watched go in negative directions at times and that the only thing I could really do was take the reins on my own future and my choices. Thank you. And you, Phoebe? Yeah, it's mine's a much different story. <laughs> I well, I also had family uh, history of substance abuse with my father and my grandfather and other folks in my family, and so I, I watched it. Um, you know, I watched it, and I was the oldest child, oldest grandchild, and I was just super in the chaos growing up. Um, and then when I was in my late teens, both of them were were sober and in recovery, and I was still, you know, reeling from that from that experience. And then went to college, still unhealed, didn't have the tools to cope and had more traumatic experiences in college. And everything was just, I was just pushing it all down. I felt like a a gasket ready to explode. And then I left um, after college. I lived, Alyssa and I lived together for a year and then I was in an abusive relationship and left him and moved to Chicago. And then when I got to Chicago, I, I fell into a new place in my life because I had been suppressing my queer identities, suppressing um, my sexuality and wanting to explore that in a new city where I was anonymous and was just able to leave this person that I wasn't able to express myself around. Um, I was able to find my queer community and my polyamory polyamorous community and really explore myself. And so over the last seven years, about half that time was spent in active addiction, quote unquote, if you will, um, where I found I loved the parties, I loved the bar, like, I was just, that was my social life was drinking away all the pain. And what actually had begun to happen was I was still so ashamed. And in the closet, I started to live a double life, where my family and friends from back home knew me as one version of myself and people at work and all of that. And, you know, when I was drinking, I would tell coworkers, oh, by the way, I have two partners and I'm queer. And it was like the naughty secret. Um, but that shame really kept me in the closet and this fear that if I came out to my very evangelical family that I would be disowned. And eventually I reached a breaking point where this living a double life and, and wanting more for my life, you know, being on the corporate uh, hamster wheel on one lane and then being this like wild artist in the queer community and um, the the alt sex community here in Chicago really it reached a breaking point where I could no longer like the jig was up I could no longer do it and I had to choose myself and so I mean I had a, a moment you know a rock bottom if you will but it really was a combination of wanting to quit drinking because it was this underlying thing that I turned to to cope with all my pain. And I knew it was the thing. I knew it was the thing holding me back. And if I could just get rid of this thing, I could address all this other shit that was making me feel bad. And that's what I did. (laughs) And so um, I still feel very fresh at times. Like I still feel very early in recovery um, and around understanding and honoring and really tapping into my power and potential. But I have been you know, sober from all substances except caffeine <laughs> for a little over three years. And it's been, it's been great. It's been hard and it's been worth it for sure. And then I came out and it was good and my family didn't disown me. So it's like a happy, story, happy ending. <laughs> well, well done. Um, just, just looking at the, the queer community, queer community and black community are my, my, my communities. And, um, yes, when I think about, gosh, I mean, you know, you talk about polyamory. I mean, it's like, you're just reinventing. Well, I mean, you, you know, and, um, a lot of drugs and alcohol took place. And I'm just thinking of some of the work of Bruce Alexander, who talks about the recovery cafes and how important it is to have recovery cafes. So as I'm listening to you, and if there are young people listening and thinking, well, so if I stop going to the clubs, the queer clubs or the straight clubs or the black clubs, and what are they? How how do I socialise? And and so in a way, how can movements like Sober, Sober Voices create these recovery cafes or create places where young people and older people can socialize? 
Yeah, I that question exactly is something that is what forced me to create a space here in Chicago called the Chicago Queer Sober Social, because in the city, we didn't have any sober party spaces or dry sober spaces that weren't part of 12-step programs or held in a church parking lot, like during Pride. I mean, that was pretty much it. You had Pride, and then one of the churches would hold a, a dry queer event. And I was just like, that's not, that's, there's got to be more than that. And so I, with the help of a friend um, and some other friends here in the city, we founded this this event and it ended up being this really cool social event where we had over a hundred people show up to, to our events and then the pandemic started. So it was, it ended up being really neat. I mean, we were featured in NBC and the Chicago Tribune and it, because it's so important to have places where we can be joyful and have joy and be in community and, and have fun and flirt and be sexy and feel good and have that experience, that euphoria of, of what nightlife brings us of being in fam, like with our chosen family, whoever that is to you. Um, and then we can do it without drugs and alcohol. I mean, we had a lot of people show up who aren't, don't identify as in recovery, don't even consider themselves sober curious, just wanted to go to a place where those two things, like drugs and alcohol weren't present. So they could be, have better conversations. A lot of feedback we were getting was, I felt like I really got to know people at this event because we weren't all plastered and <laughs> could actually communicate. There definitely is a desperate need. I'm part of a, uh, I'm part of a Buddhist community and in England uh, we have something called Buddhafield where there's no drugs, there's no alcohol. And we don't say this, we just say this is a sober place, but people who aren't in recovery come because it's their one festival that they can come to for seven days in a field and hang out without without the drugs and alcohol and and it and it's great it's 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 great so these these places have always been needed i think um i want to ask you what what's the mission statement of sober voices what what you know it's like you kind of founded this organization it's partly about bringing voice sober voices together what, what else? What what next? What is its mission statement? And what does it intend to do after this month-long um, summit that you're having? Yeah, I mean, really, the mission is to just build, like, a very intentional community space where multifaceted voices and points of view are highlighted and represented. Um, and that was really our vision that we kind of built brick by brick, the event, um, and, you know, that's like the brand's mission. The event, I think, is just one piece of what this could build out into. Um, but when we talk about community, there are all of these places. Like I'm in Austin. We have Sands Bar here. Um, there's Listen Bar in New York and, you know, Reprieve Party. And uh, what's the Daybreaker does like sober dance parties. There's all of these people. And we just like the idea of being building the space where we can be like a hub and connector to, so that more people have awareness of all these different things going on. And with everything being so virtual right now, I think it was the perfect time where ideally, you know, this can be something that can expand all of those networks. And maybe this is a great time for people to connect with others and m maybe meet some people who can be sober real life friends in their area, you know, when the time, when the time comes to gather in person. So I think that's really the vision is just an intentional community space and, um, you know, bringing it back to what we talked about in the beginning, pushing forward voices that are underrepresented here too. I mean, especially on sober Instagram, which is a great community for so many reasons, but when you think about algorithms and all this, you know, having the opportunity to individually highlight, you know, people who might not be otherwise is just, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also, I was writing, uh, someone asked a similar question of, Oh, what's next. And I mean, we, we don't know what we don't know in terms of what our future organizers will bring to the table. And I'm so excited to hear their ideas and to hopefully pass the baton. Um, I've always built things with that in mind of passing it to future leadership because I 
I like to build things and then go on to the next thing. <laughs> um, so I'm excited to to hear what other people have to say. I think we, you know, what's that quote? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think we knew we had to build the thing. And as two white women, we were like, is this even something we should be doing? Um, and then we felt that we needed to, that we were, yeah, we do, we did need to do it. And then we also needed to do it in a way that we could attract folks who weren't like us to help us build the next iteration of it and, and pass it on, um, to create the space and then pass it on. Great. And, um, what you, you mentioned social justice, if we are thinking of recovery and social justice, what does recovery look like if social justice is part of recovery? What does that look like? To me, it's around accessibility and meeting people where they're at in terms of their economic and re- economic resources, their life experiences and lived experiences, what they're what speaks to them. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to recover in that it's, it's providing people access to resources to help them do so. Um, we all know that we need community and, and relationships in order to recover. It just depends. Something may speak to you that doesn't speak to something else, somebody else. Um, from a social justice standpoint, though, it is about, it's interesting because we are an event and who is taking in money and charging money. And when you think about social justice in terms of mutual aid, there is this, um, you know, access to resources that are for free. And we, it's this balance that we're trying to strike um, and a question that we keep coming back to. And from a social justice standpoint, it's about naming um the ways in which the systems that we are all part of impact these spaces and trying to mitigate the harm and name the potential for harm. And I mean, what everything I've learned about social justice, I learned from black and BIPOC feminists and womanist thinkers, and it is about doing no harm or doing the least amount of harm as possible. Um, and so when we're thinking about how we're building this business, it is about, inclusion from a programming standpoint, like who's not in the room, who's not at the table from an accessibility in terms of how people think and how they uh, consume content and thinking about captioning and in the future, hopefully we can afford ASL and BSL interpretation um, and all all sorts of things. Even to in, in the future, structuring our fee structure for speakers so that there's some sort of a disparity index so that folks who are, you know, cutie BIPOC folks get paid more than the white women on our, on our agenda um, because of the ways that economic injustice has impacted everyone's access. So we're not, I mean, we are learning and, and that's why we hire so many people to help us because this is not our area of expertise. We're really good at building brands and communities. It's, it's really interesting to talk about paying black and big pop people more than white people because this is where um, D'Angelo has been really criticised in in her work on white fragility and by a a black person and and saying not to assume that because we're black and indigenous people of colour that we don't earn money and that we're poor and I think that's really really important when we we look at that that again is a social justice thing because often um, we can go down that down that line yeah um what what do you hope to do with the money so you you, you're charging you're paying people where do you hope to invest invest the money and the reason why i ask this is because we we're in this situation now where we have recovery programs buddhist recovery programs where there's no price ticket on it 12-step recovery programs no price tag on it recovery programs no price tag on it and yet we're beginning to have programs like Tempest, which you know, I've, 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 as you know, I've worked for uh, other recovery programs which have a price tag on it. So in a way, what's your view about that and where do you see you investing money? Yeah, it's Alyssa uses a, 
Actually, Alyssa, why don't you use that metaphor you use with me? Because I, if I had it, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. What metaphor? I'm like, what? The gym, the gym one, <laughs> the gym and like, so your metaphor about how some people will go, some people will do workouts at home and, and, and fit. So using this fitness as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were talking about that. I'm like, you know, sure. People can literally walk outside of their house and go for a run, but people pay for a gym membership because having somewhere to show up where they have accountability and a community that might be there makes a big difference to most people. Um, and so that's how, that's how I think of making money in this space. Like, you know, people could go do very self-guided recovery and go to AA or like, you know, bootstrap like Google and find all of their resources online. Um, but, but I think human nature wise, that's not how a lot of us are successful. That's not how I'm successful. I need, I need some structure and accountability and community support and relationships. And so when I think about, uh, you know, recovery programs charging where they're very holistic and they offer a wide variety of services that you can't get in a 12 step meeting room, you know, or like, you know, advice from physicians and, um, you know, spiritual guidance or, you know, meditations and some sort of structured pathway. I do think there's value to that. And, um, I think someone spending money on that might be more invested in actually showing up for it too to some degree for some people. Um, as far as the question about, you know, what we plan to do is it's a paid event. Uh, you know, where, like Phoebe said a million times, we're boot, we're bootstrapped. And so we've been working, we've been working for about five months on this. Um, me part-time and Phoebe full-time for the last few months. And we've had some advisors along the way. So, you know, for us, we have, of course, like our own expenses for our platform. And we also want to pay, you know, our advisors and our team for our time and then um, paying our speakers. And then from there, you know, depending on how ticket sales go, if there's profit left over, we've also talked about sharing profit with our speakers and with our advisory team, too. So, that's really, you know, at a certain point, we have to touch base on like what our goals are, if we have to invest some in the next year's event, so we are able to get an earlier start and uh, bring on those core organizers that we want to compensate for their time. Um, It's sort of leaving this mindset that's like a complete service base should be, you know, all of us just giving our time for free, because that's just something that's important to us. So for our listeners, how can they get involved with Sober Voices? I know we've got this summit, which is going to be beginning in February, I think February the 1st for the whole month. And maybe they might be interested in the summit or not, but they might think, oh, this is something that I want to get involved with. How do they get involved? Yeah, we so summit.sobervoices.co is the event website. And then sobervoices.co is, the, is our business website, if you will. Right now, I'm going to be really honest and transparent. We are, we have been full cylinders on the event itself. And so building something past that is, we're not, we're not there yet. (laughs) So ideally, we are able to build a community space around this, uh, where people can convene more regularly and we are exploring different platforms and investing in different platforms that could help facilitate that. Um, also, that's all virtual. It, it, we really don't know what comes next. And I think that's where it's kind of an open call to the community to help brainstorm and co-create with us. Um, we know there are a lot of people out there who are really excited about this. And we're only two people with our unique lived experiences. So, And the immediate way that they can support, you know, is buying a ticket. But if there's um, a certain speaker that they really are passionate about seeing, um, each of our speakers are able, they have their own like sort of speaker link. Uh, A lot of them are linked in their bios where they get a commission off of their ticket sales. And so we've been very vocal about that because, you know, we want, we want them to benefit from this as much as possible. And then obviously from a production standpoint, it, it supports them wanting to share it as well. Um, I'm sorry. And um, from there as well, if they can't attend, then a lot of them have Patreons or, you know, you're, you're able to support that person's work in their own way. So someone else could just support it by 
seeing the speakers and learning someone new and giving them a follow and supporting their work. Yeah. So, yeah just a, a couple more questions. Um, can you tell me exactly the dates of the, the summit? What, what are the dates? Yeah, so the summit is February 4th through 6th. It's a Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, each day we have, it's and everything's on that summit website. So once you go to summit.sobervoices.co, that's where you buy your ticket. That's also where all of the individual sessions and panels will be shared on that day at the sort of time that they're scheduled for. Um, so each day we've got about, I think it's like seven or seven to nine individual speakers and then um, one to two panels. And then at the end of each day is one of those live keynote conversations. And that's just through like a Zoom webinar link that would be posted on the Summit website. And will there, do you have a platform where people will be able to socialize and hang out? Not really. That's like, that's something that we've been thinking a lot about that we, you know, in the flurry of everything, we're like, oh my God, that would be really cool to have. So, may, I mean, we've got two weeks, so we might be able to, <laughs> we, I mean, we're pretty fast, so we might be able to come up with something here. I mean, there were so many things like that, and um, we're like, maybe we should have like a virtual dance party and all these other things. But, you know, for this one being our first, the programming and making sure that's all wrapped up really comes first for us. Um, if someone wants to donate their time and set up a virtual <laughs> We would love to have them. Uh, I will say that one of the beauties of having uh, most of the sessions, all the sessions except for the keynotes, all of those are pre-recorded, um, is that A, there will be less tech issues and uh, B, a lot of the speakers will be joining for like a live, you know, live chat during their session as well. Well, I want to say well done. I, I think it's absolutely brilliant what you're doing. Um, and I just say, just keep on doing what you're doing. I think it's great. I think it's definitely created a buzz. Um, it's definitely helping to make recovery fashionable. This is what we want, you know, in that younger generation. And I'm just wondering if you, either of you have some closing words to say. Well, I, I just want to thank you for reaching out to us. And, you know, even having this conversation is telling me that I need to learn more about Buddhist recovery. Um, and maybe that's something that we include the next time around. Uh, for me, coming from my background where my sobriety really started with witnessing people suffer in my own life, I think pushing this movement forward to be a more like fun and cool looking and receptive space um, will only just help people who really need support and help in their in their lives or who are struggling feel less other and feel more supported when they're making that decision. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I think we're all in the business of alleviating suffering and helping people suffer less. And I think that's our common thread here in this movement work and in this work around healing. Thank you for having us on in this conversation. I've admired your work from afar. So I'm also fangirling. Hi, I'm Vimla Sara, President of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit which has expenses. 
We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy, free resources on our website, and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace.